Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. It's a weekly show where we have the opportunity to discuss the latest and most business leadership and technology innovation trends across multiple industries. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Sam Allen, myself, and our distinguished guest, your questions on Twitter using hashtag DisruptTV. We'll do our best to answer them live. It's my uh, privilege to introduce our uh, substitute host, uh, Alan Lepofsky, Vice President and Principal Analyst uh, at Constellation Research. Alan focuses on future of work, purposeful collaboration, uh, productivity and digital transformation, and workforce culture that's based on digital proficiency instead of age. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about that through our conversation. Over the almost two decades, uh, his experience in collaboration in the software industry has helped organizations improve the way their employees work together to get their jobs done and do it faster, better, and more collaboratively. He's a fantastic follow on Twitter at A-L-A-N-L-E-P-O. Welcome, Alan, to Disrupt TV. Hi, Vala. Thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I appreciate you and Ray uh, allowing me to substitute for Ray today. You are always an inspiration for me to work with and, and make me feel good with those introductions. But, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're certainly a mentor in this space for me of how to interview people, how to prepare for interviews, social media prowess. It's, uh, it's just a, a pleasure to work with you. Alan, thank you so much. Well, Ray, myself and you, we're always inspired by our guests and we learn from our guests. And our first guest is Bruce Kasanoff, author of I Am, co-author of I Am. Co-author. He is considered by many as one of the most prolific and approachable LinkedIn influencer. Uh, Bruce is a storyteller who highlights the power of generosity, clarity, and focus. And we're going to learn about that. His new book, I Am, Escape Distraction, Unlock Your Imagination, and Unleash Your Potential, is what we're going to spend the next 20 minutes talking about. Bruce was also co-author of How to Self-Promote Without Being a Jerk. <laughs> and never tell people what you do, both of which have been best-selling Kindle titles on Amazon. He serves as a storyteller for highly accomplished professionals and executives, including CEOs and entrepreneurs. And we're going to learn about that as well. He's another fantastic follow. In fact, all of the guests today on our show are fantastic follows on Twitter at B-R-U-C-E-K-A-S-A-N-O-F-F. Welcome, Bruce, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Bella. And nice to talk to you, Alan, too. Thank you. Excellent. Alan, we'll start with you with a question. <laughs> sure thing, Bruce. Well, I, you know, again, ple pleasure to work with you today. As Vala has said in the introduction, I work a lot with, um, you know, the enterprise collaboration space. And as such, employees are always struggling of, you know, what do I do for myself first? What do I do for my colleagues? What does collaboration mean, et cetera? I love that you talk about this concept of helping others ends up leading towards helping yourself, both for the company, your career. I, I'd love for you to talk to us about that a bit. How do you get everyday, overburdened, busy employees to think about their colleagues and not think about themselves? Right, right. Well, I mean, the, the number one reason to do it is that it's a more effective strategy. So that if you think of it in selfish terms, I don't like to think of it in selfish terms, but if you want to be calculating about it, the fact is, is that especially in a social media driven age, people don't share things that are self-serving or they perceive to be self-serving. If you put something out there and say, join my team, buy my product, that's not a really compelling thing. Whereas 
if your first impulse, I, the, the, probably the most famous thing I ever wrote was an article about three words should be in your mind whenever you encounter another person and they're help this person. And the fact that this basically enlightens self-interest, which means that if I can serve you first, if I can do something for you first, you're going to value the relationship you have with me. If you value the relationship you have with me, then I have an opportunity to pursue my goals. I don't mean just selfishly, but you know, I'm trying to get a company to grow. I'm trying to get the people around me to work with me. I'm trying to get people to rally behind a vision. If, if I'm thinking about you first, I'm going to be more empathetic. I'm going to communicate better and I'm just going to be more effective. That makes a lot of sense, both in, at work and in life. Uh, Bruce, uh, Steve uh, Jobs was uh, famously uh, said that the most powerful person in business is the storyteller. Mm -hmm. so as you are coaching um, business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, these are folks that come on Disrupt TV, and an executive comes to you and says, Bruce, I want to become a better storyteller. And you just mentioned being empathetic and unselfish and and in that is the ability to learn to listen and, 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 and be helpful. But what are some of the coaching advice you give executives? What does it mean to be a good storyteller? Well, first of all, you can't accomplish anything until you capture someone's attention. So I can have the smartest vision. And if I'm just yakking, 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 and there's 2,000 people, it doesn't really matter. So the first thing I have to do is I have to say, you know, how can I engage you? How can I get your attention? Uh, I... I Years ago, when I was in the personalization space, I tried to define intelligence. What is human intelligence? And the best definition that I could come up with is it's having something of value to say, but it's also knowing what is the difference between what's valuable to you and what's valuable to Alan. People are not the same. So I have to understand where's the intersection of how I can be interesting and engaging, but for that audience, whether it's one person at a time, whether it's a segment, whether it's investors versus employees, I have to know first, how do I engage you? Do you have to be likable to be a good storyteller? I don't think you have to be likable. I think you have to be interesting. And I think you have to know what you want to say. I mean, people, you can really say, that guy is such a jerk and I'm still going to be fascinated with what he has to say. So no, I don't think so. I mean, I think I would prefer it to be, but you don't have to be. So Bruce, what, what does being a storyteller actually mean at work? When we, it, it's, it, I use the term a lot, it's overused a lot. When we hear storyteller, you know, we, we think about books and movies and entertainment and things, but that, that's not true. Like as employees, we need to all be better storytellers. What, what does that mean? So I think the fundamental shift that you make if you try to be a storyteller, so to speak, is that you actually know what your message slash story is, that you're not just yakking, that you're not just saying, well, you know, what am I going to say now that you know, for example, I believe that pretty much anything you do, if you go into a meeting, if you write an article, if you write a memo, pretty much want one message. You want, you want to know and you want the other person to be able to walk away and say, oh, yeah, I know what Bruce wanted to say. He said, you know, help other people. And that's your message. And you say, and that doesn't mean that you don't listen. It doesn't mean that you can't have five steps or that's five, I guess, versus three, <laughs> five steps to say it. But fundamentally, what are you trying to do? If you look at, you know, uh, an actual storyteller, uh, a moth radio hour type of person, they have actually 
woven together in their head, in their heart. Here's how I'm going to take you down the path to the message that I want to impart to you, whether it's funny or whether it's heartwarming, but they know where they're going. Most people, I don't think they really know where they're going. Wow, that's great insights. Um, tell us about your book. Uh, I am, tell us about the title and also tell us about, you talk about unlocking your imagination and unleashing your potential. So can you tell us about your book in the context of, you know, how you can, why it's important to unlock your imagination and unleashing your potential? Sure. So, so first of all, this is the new agey, the 10 second new agey part of my, my appearance on your show. So I'm a very strategic person. I do things for reasons. I have one message. I, I know what they are. I was meditating and I came up with this idea that I should write a book. Every passage in it should start with I am and that I should write it with a friend of mine, Amy Blaschka, so that it wouldn't just be a male perspective, it wouldn't just be my perspective, it, we would go back and forth. And we did not tell anybody, we didn't tell our spouses, we didn't tell our friends, we didn't tell anybody, on the basis that if it proved to be valuable, we'd publish it, and if it didn't, we wouldn't. And, and we, we judged that it proved to be valuable. So the, the, it's a non-linear attempt for you to step away from whatever stories are in your head, and to experiment with other ways of thinking. Some of them are imaginative. Um, I am very tiny, and we weave a little story about that. The whole idea is you read one or two passages, you lie down, you sit on the train, you forget it. We don't, we don't have any instructions in the book, but it is, um, it, every other page in the book is blank so that you can write your notes, and people are sending us unbelievable you know pictures and stories about you know i filled up the first half of the book i started to write my own i am passages i came up with a business idea it's it's just simply an attempt to get out of the linear logical step-by-step -step thing that you know is great for part of our lives but i don't think it's sufficient to really unlock potential or imagination or creativity fascinating fascinating so, you know, when I was reading, reading about this and, and looking through the book, you know, thinking all the I am's I would fill in, I realized how, how negative I think we can tend to be about ourselves, especially when I think about my workday. I am overloaded. I am overburdened. I am behind. I have too many tasks to do. I was, I was almost embarrassed at myself about how I started filling in those blanks. Right. How, do we, how do we shift that? How do... How does I, I'm Canadian. I'm supposed to be positive about everything, right? You know, it's like, you know how, how do we shift that? How, how can you help coach or turn people around to see the good in their I am? Well, so I think that, first of all, the honest answer, which is different than most people give you. Most people will say, do these five steps. I don't think that works. It, it, the, the thing I learned, again, way back from personalization is how different we are. So we came up with a way that is extraordinarily unstructured. And part of what we're trying to do now is to share the different approaches that people have so that you see, wow, there is no one path. There is no, you know, I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it right. But to your point, Alan, a good friend of mine bought the book and she reached out to me the other day and she said, kind of what you said, she said, you know, to be honest, I didn't find it that helpful because I'm scared, I'm frightened, I'm frustrated. And yours were all positive and inspiring and they weren't negative. So I didn't identify Why didn't you write more negative passages? And, you know, we thought, you know, obviously because we don't want to reinforce 
the negative. I actually wrote a passage just for her. I sent it to her privately that tried to walk her out of the negativity. But I, I think that fundamentally you have to open the door a crack and you have to say, you know, this relentless barrage of negative stories that play in most of our heads does not serve us. It just doesn't help. It is the antithesis of helping you. And you have to open the door to something else. And that's, that's really the sole purpose of the book is to open the door a crack, invite you to come in and you do the rest. We're not going to turn you into a positive person because you read the book, but by reading the book, perhaps you start on a journey. And by also reading the book, it means, you know, a page, a time, not, you know, sit down and read the book and highlight it. Uh, you know, we're just opening the door. Uh, uh, that, a guide towards imagination and reaching full potential. So, so um, you, in your other book, you've talked about how to share without uh, too much self-promotion. And as a storyteller uh, today, especially with use of social media, you can find ways to scale your voice if you have the proper mindset and focus and most importantly good intentions can you talk about the best way to use learnings from the book and social media as an example to 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 educate and inspire without being too self-promoting so the, the number one piece of advice i give my clients is that everything that you publish has to have value to readers even or listeners, even if they don't do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have a client who's putting on a big conference. What he was doing was a steady stream on his LinkedIn feed of, you know, um, Bill McCarthy is speaking at my event. You know, Janice Joplin is speaking at my event. And I said to him, you know, it would be far more effective if you said, you know, Janice Joplin's great insight was blank, 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 and you share a piece of wisdom that people could use and say, by the way, she's speaking next Tuesday at my event. So even if I'm not in Los Angeles where your event is, I don't go, I don't want to spend the money, I still get something of value, I still might share it, I still look at you and say, wow, you know, you share valuable things. If on the other hand, all you're doing is, you know, buy this, come here, hire me, people won't share that. People don't get value. So you have to keep in the front of your mind. I, I, I say serve, don't sell. You know, first you serve people, you help them. Ultimately, if you do that, people will say, well, he's a really smart guy. He's a valuable, he's interesting. She's very perceptive and they'll come to you. It's a challenge in this social media world we live in these days, especially, you know, well, we, the cliche used to be in 140 character bytes. I guess it's now 280 character byte segments to try and share information yet at the same time, you know, not, uh, not pat ourselves on the back. Vala, you do one of the best jobs of, of anyone I've seen. You're, you're prol prolific on Twitter and, and inspirational, but it's never about you. So, um, you know, Bruce, how, how do other people start to do that? Like, how, how do I share my wisdom, but don't make it about me? I, I just think it, it, it's not really different than what I said. It, it's trying to understand how what's important to the people around you, trying to understand who they are, and what would be valuable to them. And so for example, one of the things that I try and do as much as humanly possible, is I try and 
spur conversations. So I don't think of it as me spewing wisdom, me spewing what I want you to do. I think about it as, you know, what's of concern to people today? What are they interested? What are they scared about? What are they curious about? And can I start a conversation? And I look at my network as containing wisdom. And how do I get that wisdom to come out? How do I get people to understand, wait, Alan, you know, Alan could solve my problem as opposed to say everything is, you know, buy Bruce's book, come to Bruce. That's not sustainable. It's not interesting to me personally. And I don't think it's a good strategy. I think the best strategy is to be, you know, kind of within a group of people who are trying to do important things, to be one of those people, to be collaborative, as you said earlier, and not to be a pontificating, you know, talking head. Sure. What are, um, what are some of the biggest lesson takeaway from writing your, your latest book? What was the aha moment? Um, if, if you step back and stop thinking, then you actually come up with better ideas. Hmm. So, so slow down to go faster. Yeah, because what happens is we get into a pattern. And so we're doing these little incremental improvements you know, continuous improvement, but tiny improvements. Whereas sometimes you step back and you say, oh my God, there's like a 10 time better way to say this. I should be focusing my attention differently. I should be working with different people. One of my other favorite sayings is your environment always wins. And sometimes when you step back, you realize, you know, like people say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Am I spending my time with the right people? Or am I spending my time, you know, every now and then, I hate to say it, but I step away from a client or, you know, who is it that gives you energy? What is it that gives you energy? And you have to step back periodically to, to understand those things. That's good advice. Okay. Well, you know, Bruce, I, this has been, you know, I jokingly tweeted out earlier today that today's show, all three of you are our guests. Uh, selfishly, I want to learn from all of you as well as, let, you know, helping the audience learn from you. Uh, you know, I think it's amazing, you know, the empathy that you have for your audience. Everything you do is based on how do I help them? How can I help my customer? How can I help my client? How can I help? It, it's inspirational to hear you sort of talk about that that's your focus on things from your book to helping people do storytelling and everything, you know, Thank you so much for sharing those things with us. I encourage all of our viewers out there to please go take a look at I Am and, and take a look at your website and, and watch. You know, I know I, I watched a bunch of your videos earlier this morning, and I hope we can continue to, to interact with you on social media and have you back uh, in the future. The, the URL for your book is in the chat for those of you that are watching. And Vala, I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to say, but um, you know, thank you very much, Bruce. Well, thank, thank you. you both. Thank you very much. Please follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Kasanoff, K-A-S-A-N-O-F-F. Thank you, Bruce, for being on Disrupt TV. Thank you both. It's a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You know, the more you give, the more you get. I mean, it's, it's uh, all of the best uh, networkers, connectors are, are, are ones that do it uh, for good reasons. The, the best leaders, you know, people that you, you, leader means people want to follow you. And that's, you know, it's, you know, you, you want people that care about helping others. It's great. Absolutely. And, and this is a great segue to one of the most unselfish givers that I know mm. and an extraordinary mentor. She is my mentor. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'd like to uh, introduce Deb Mills Schofield. 
strategic and innovation consulting, venture capitalist, mentor, and advisor. And one of the best things that happened to me on Twitter since I've been on the platform is a story that Deb and I share, but that's for another show. Uh, <laughs> and you can read about it in uh, Harvard Business Review. Deb, Deb yep. wrote a post about it. Deb's passionate about helping companies, individuals to see what's possible and then make plans to achieve it. Deb, sorry, I have to shorten your bio because we only have 20 minutes. Uh, vision for how things could be done, running the world of the possible uh, manifested in full force when she was in college and she helped to create Brown University's cognitive science concentration, which she finished in three years. At Bell Labs, Deb spent bulk of her career, early career, creating one of AT&T's all-time highest revenue generating patents because it was based on real customer needs. Uh, while she was at Bell, she discovered the pleasure of fostering and potential uh, through writing and investing. She's a regular Harvard Business contributor. She writes her own blogs. I'm waiting for her book. Every time she's on the show, I keep saying that. <laughs> she is, uh, again, a venture capitalist, early stage VC firm. And today she continues to foster innovation and growth in others, mostly about mentoring students and executives at Brown University. She is an amazing follow on Twitter at D Schofield, D-S-C-O-F-I-E-L-D. Welcome back to Disrupt TV, Deb Schofield. Thank you. Well, and, and as you can see, Paula is just such a wonderful person. And as his mentor, I'll take credit for all of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some life, important life questions that I had to run by you. So I appreciate your guidance always. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Well, Deb, they, you know, I, I hope I can get in line for that that mentorship because <laughs> you know I, I I love reading the things that you do. You have a focus on things that just resonates so well with me. You have this concept about see what's possible, and I absolutely love that because I know, you know, I hinder my own effort sometimes by you know, getting to the 90% mark, but then not being able to complete things. And I, mm -hmm. I love the idea of see what's possible. Can you talk to us uh, a bit about that and how that manifests itself at work today for employees, for companies, for executives? Well, what does possible mean? So there's possible and probable. So things could be highly pr probable, which means they're possible. Um, it could have low probability, but still be possible. And I think we tend to get caught up more in, the, in our world on what's probable versus what's not probable instead of the possible. Um, and so one of the phrases I use a lot is like, so where is it written? Um, so for instance, you know, I go to Brown and somebody says, well, you can't graduate from Brown in three years, to which my response is, yeah. Um, and there's some things that, you know, are rules, like don't run in the street when a car's coming. Otherwise, unless it defies the laws of physics and nature in some way, I think pretty much anything is possible. It may not be probable. Um, and you have to assess your own personal sense of risk and reward for going for it. Because if you don't try, you know, most entrepreneurs and most people regret what they didn't do, didn't try. Um, and usually the downside isn't as bad as you think. And, you know, I tell my students even, um, and I don't mean to be morbid, but the, what is the worst thing that can happen to you? You know, you're dead, in which case you don't have to worry about it. Um, but even today, like, you know, losing a limb isn't even what it used to be. 
So that whole concept of possible is just even more and more open than it used to be. I joined Salesforce because I thought it was a company that helped uh, their clients understand and appreciate and realize the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. And I thought that uh, it wasn't about the technology, even though they have amazing technology. I would always admired the culture, their ethos. I thought their CEO, co-founder, uh, or what was, was an amazing storyteller. Uh, so it was just, it was about more about inspiration than anything else. But I also recognized that in order to achieve the possible, not only you need good culture, good leadership, but you need talent. And there's right. a gap. And that gap continues to widen when it comes to talent. And here you are at Brown. I'm guessing you've mentored hundreds of students and, and, and also executives and academics and so on and so forth. Why is mentoring so important to you? And why should companies think about mentoring, including reverse mentoring? Because oh, yeah. things businesses need to survive it today and tomorrow it really requires a different mindset that perhaps didn't exist in that legacy construct of today's, you know, especially brick and mortar companies. So I think mentoring is important for several reasons. So if we talk about like what is possible, there's the technological aspect, but if you don't have a mindset and cultivate a mindset and reward a mindset that lets you think of what's possible instead of being afraid. So that gets to, you know, you can have all the tools, but if the leadership doesn't make it okay to try stuff and give you the intellectual and emotional freedom to try stuff. Um, and that's where I think mentoring can be really important. So for me, the reason mentoring is important is because I had tremendous mentoring at Brown that I didn't realize I had. I mean, I still go up there and my um, two of my advisors um, are still there. One is retiring at the end of the year. The other one is still teaching. I still have coffee, tea, chat with them. You know, this is several decades later. Um, and they had a profound impact in shaping how I thought. I go to Bell Labs. I had the most unbelievable mentor managers, and that's another HBR thing I wrote, you know, four loss, best lessons from my bosses. So I am where I am because, yes, I had an innate capability and talent, but I had people that saw that, developed it, pushed me, and my, my view of management is they do that, and they take all the credit when things go badly, and they give you all the credit when things go well. Okay, so that's an example of a good mentor. Un or a good manager. Good manager, unselfishly promote. Right, and, and what they protect, give air cover, and what, what a mentor does is help you see what's possible. So I view my role in mentoring with executives and with my students, and frankly, kids are a lot more fun because they're less constrained in their thinking and they're less cynical. Um, but my role is to ask them questions they wouldn't either think to ask themselves or they don't want to ask themselves. My job isn't to tell them the answer. My job is to teach them how to ask the questions they need to ask to answer it themselves and realize that there probably are many answers. There's rarely just one. And that's what was done to me. You know, my bosses would say, well, why do you want to do this? Or why that? Or how do you do? Or and kept challenging me, which pushed me to grow in a very safe space because they gave me air cover. Makes sense. And that's a people thing, not a tech thing. 
So Deb, I find that fascinating that as a mentor, you've just told us a whole bunch of things that it's not necessarily you passing down knowledge or guidance. It's using your knowledge or guidance to extract, to, to teach people to think for themselves and extract it out of themselves. So what's the flip side? So we've heard some about being a good mentor. What makes a good mentee? What should, what should we do and, and what should we avoid doing? What, what are the people that are learning? What, what attributes and skills do they need? Um, so as I look at my good mentees, my great mentees, um, they're curious. They will push back politely and nicely um, and push back and challenge me, but not be closed-minded like, oh, well, no, I don't want to do that. Um, so there's, there's a sense of being respectful. They also come prepared. Now, up at Brown, I have, I didn't know I had, but apparently I have a methodology that Brown is now codifying to roll out all across Brown. And the kids help me see that. So there are certain questions I ask them. And what I'm now doing is when someone wants to make office hours with me and I haven't met them before, I'll give them like a first exercise. And that's a way to vet, like, are you just having an office hour with Deb because you're supposed to or because you really want to? Um, and so come prepared, have an idea of what you want to talk to me about. Um, and in mentoring, I usually, when it's, when it gets more formalized, we have a kind of agenda of here are the things we want to discuss, work on, deal with. Um, and so that kind of sets the agenda. So, so I love curiosity. Fantastic. It's an attribute that leads to successful people being open-minded. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are fearful. Being prepared, that was a, that's, it's a very interesting one because I think sometimes we're scared. And you know, one of the questions I had for you is, how does someone who want, you know, as a, the person that wants to find a mentor or request someone to become their mentor, we're often intimidated or scared. But as someone who's done this for hundreds of people, tell us, like, make me confident that the mentors aren't worried about us asking and you're comfortable and you want us to come to you because you know i think that may be one of the things that limits these relationships often is the person's too scared to even get it started well i think it depends on the setting so in a corporate setting you know it can be viewed as weakness depending on the company or it can be, be viewed as overly ambitious oh they want a mentor to get ahead or it can be viewed as wow that's really cool and that's a good thing you should be doing um i think you need to look at what, why do you want to be mentored? Why do you think you do? Um, you might have to ask yourself why a few times. And then who are the best people that have the skills, talents, experience, knowledge to mentor me in those areas? And maybe I maximize that as much in one person or a couple. I think sometimes you need multiple mentors for different things. And then ask them, you know, stop by their office or whatever. And you know, I really would love to learn from you. These are the things I really would like to learn and I think you could really help me. Would you be willing to mentor me? And this is what I'm asking for half an hour once a month or whatever in the, you know, in the work environment and set that up. And if ever a person says no, then they're a schmuck and you don't need them anyway. <laughs> Someone you don't want to even deal with. Right. Now, one of the things, uh, one of my favorite things that I've heard is that we become more thoughtful intelligent, educated, well-rounded people by surrounding ourselves in diversity. How do I, how do I go about sort of creating not just a sing, it's hard enough and scary enough, and you've just convinced me maybe I shouldn't be scared. It's hard enough to approach one person. 
How do you create like a portfolio of people that you want to learn from? I think you decide what it is you want to learn or experience or discover, and then you go seek out those people. And they can be people that you know, people in your network. You should ask people if, it's, if it isn't directly someone you know, ask them who they know. Yeah. Um, like I'll, I'll tell my, I'm doing this with my, I call them my kids. Now they're calling themselves my blue lobsters. Um, all the time of, you know, you need to talk to the, if you're interested in this. <laughs> and quick, can you just give us a quick, you know, 30 second blue lobster. <laughs> tell us the blue lobsters. Okay, blue lobsters are one in about two million. They are a genetic mutation. They are stunningly gorgeous. Where we live in Maine for part of the year and, and every day for me mentally, um, we live a peninsula away from the University of Maine Starling Marine Center where they study blue lobsters and literally dump the adolescent blue lobsters into our harbor. So through serendipity and the network of how I learned about that area, we tend to live, we live somewhere that tends to have a higher than normal percentage of blue lobsters. So they represent somebody as well as organizations that think differently, challenge the status quo, want to have an impact, and they're just not going to settle. They're going to go out and make the world better. <laughs> so, and if they're red, they're dead. <laughs> so, so is it fair to say most unicorns probably have a blue lobster that's part of their, part of their organization? One would, yeah, they probably do. They probably do. And the thing is, as you scale, make sure you don't cook them. Yeah, there we go. There we go. So, Deb, so as a venture capitalist, do you find that if you look at the CEO or, or founders of startups today, are they more open to collaborating, to being mentors or mentees compared to a decade ago? Do you see that effect of, for example, social media has given some introverts an opportunity to collaborate comfortably, and now they're more open in terms of sharing their ideas and collaborating with VCs and other stakeholders? Um, yes, I think so. What I don't know is the variable in there is the type of entrepreneurs I dealt with 10 years ago or five years ago were older. Okay. So most of them would be in their 30s. Okay. And now, I am dealing with, and it's a shift I've decided to make, more with um, young entrepreneurs. So kids in school still, or right out of school, or shortly out of school. Wow. So predominantly in their late teens or still 20s that are starting stuff you know, while they're in college. So I don't know how much of the difference is overall yeah. societal or generational because I'm dealing with a different population set. And why did you make a decision to shift 10 to 15 years in terms of uh, the age of who you, uh, folks you invest in? Well, one bluntly is we spent all the money in the fund and didn't want to do another one. Um, and the second is I'm spending so much more time up at Brown in my capacity up yeah. there on the engineering school and in other stuff that I'm exposed to them more and to reverse mentoring, you know, they're a heck of a lot more fun. I mean, this is, Working with them is like going to grad school for free. Hmm. Wow. So to me, and it's part of my business model for my business, is by dealing with these kids, I learn so much all the time that keeps my mind spinning, racing. You have to be fast on your feet with these guys, pivoting on a dime, and I need to do that with my clients. So that's my, you know, thinking back before to what Bruce was saying, you know, is it selfish that I do all this? Absolutely. But it also happens to help other people. 
That's amazing. Yeah. Deb, my, my, my lobster has a quick uh, question for you here. I know he's red, so he's not one in a million, but he wants your advice and your mentoring to become better and become blue. Um, I want to wrap a, a few of the topics we've discussed today together. Bruce talked about earlier in the segment, um, helping and sharing for other people. You've talked a lot about sharing knowledge and mentoring. A lot of those things are very specific program scheduled occurrences. We live in this social media, social networking world, whether it's consumer or whether it's you know, at work. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the random networking, the knowledge collisions, the, the old idea that, you know- Some expertise. Is this a setup? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know. That's John Ruckus? Go ahead, go ahead. Maybe that's why I'm asking the question. <laughs> I thought it would be a good wrap up. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, so um, at one of the BIFs, Business Innovation Factory Summit, seven-ish years ago, Saul would use this term, random collisions of unusual suspects. And I was like, oh, let's make a ruckus, and kind of stuck. Um, when Bell Labs was designed, when Bell Labs moved from lower Manhattan across to New Jersey in the 1920s and 30s, the building was intentionally designed for random collisions. Wow. So long, long hallways where... It wouldn't be like all physics here and all econ there. On one long hallway, you'd have physics, bio, chem, psych, econ, all sorts of different labs so that people could, and it was intentionally designed, people would randomly collide. Because Jewett, who was the president then, believed that those random collisions created innovation. And I remember as a kid at Bell Labs, sitting on the floor, the guys that invented security for Unix that everything's based on. And I was working on TCPIP stuff. And I was sitting with psychologists doing that. So random collisions are critical from a, why you need a liberal arts education, opening mm. up your mind. And because it teaches you, continually reinforces that, how disparate things can get put together to create something new and good and better. And frankly, I think life's just pretty boring if you're not randomly colliding with people that do all sorts of different stuff. Well, I think that's a lot more altruistic and wonderful than like the grocery stores putting milk in the back corner just to force you to buy more things. I think the, you know, your, your hallways were set up to cause people to, to do good things together, which I think is wonderful. And, and even that's what this show is about. It's bringing, yep. bringing people together that may not have otherwise... Uh, been introduced to each other and collided with each other. Deb, like me and Vala. Yeah, we, we met on a, on a, on a I, read, uh, I read the Power of Networking article in Harvard Business Review, and Deb talked about, uh, you know, the power of networking, especially if you're an immigrant. The article spoke to me, so I, I, I reached out to her on Twitter just to let her know that I, I loved her post, and uh, I, it resonated with me, and she was kind enough to respond and we started having a conversation and uh, lots of good things have happened for me uh, as a result. So thank yeah, you for that too. random collision. <laughs> um, Deb, thank you so much for being a guest on Disrupt TV. You can follow Deb on Twitter and uh, D Schofield, read her blogs and, um, and whether you're a student at Brown or a, a, a business leader or a startup founder, uh, wisdom from Deb can definitely benefit you and help you become more successful. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you guys for having me. Have a thank great you, weekend. Deb. You as well. Thank you, Deb. Bye.
Alan, you see why Ray and I enjoy Friday afternoons. It's like our favorite part of the week. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny. Like I said earlier today, I tweeted that this isn't work for me. This is I'm spending an hour learning. So this is this is excellent. It is, it is amazing. I have so much blog material. Um, <laughs> really quickly, Vala, before we introduce Jim, I just wanted to point out to, to all those that are listening, we're having some great conversations in the chat window. If you're not joining us in the in the Zoom chat window, please jump in there. Uh, and thank you to our guests who have been answering questions in there. But uh, yeah, please continue that either on Twitter or in the chat window. Awesome. Thank you. That's a great reminder. Well, this is what we call, you know, I'm using a baseball analogy. Hopefully our international audience will, will, uh, will this is our cleanup hitter spot. This is, <laughs> bring, this is where we bring a legendary guest and, uh, you know, we expect a grand slam. So, <laughs> so, so it's our pleasure to have Jim Cathcart, leadership development speaker and author. Jim is the top 1% TEDx speaker, and his uh, talks have garnered over 1.25 uh, million views on, on YouTube. He was the past president of the National Speakers Association. We've had uh, Shep Hyken on the show before, who has been a member of NSA as well, and author of 18 books including three international bestsellers. Jim has been inducted into the Sales and Marketing Hall of Fame in London and the Speakers Hall of Fame in, in, in the US. He's one of the most award-winning professional speakers in the world. His website, Cathcart, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T.com, has over 730 pages of free resources. And we actually put that in the chat window, so I believe there's a link to that. Jim is a fantastic follow on Twitter at J-I-M, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T. Welcome, Jim, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. It's great to be here. I've enjoyed the listening to the show so far. And I'm looking forward to my spot. Clean up this. I like that. <laughs> thank you, sir. So, Jim, uh, you know, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, not only is it a pleasure, but I'm, I'm in awe. You know, I, a big part of my job is, is public speaking, and mm -hmm. I feel quite comfortable doing it, and yet I look at you and go, I have orders of magnitude of improvements that I need to make. I am so excited to pick your brain this afternoon. And, you know, I'd love to, you know, we have a whole bunch of topics. We're going to talk about leadership and motivation and things, but I want to, I want to start with presenting, you know, how did, how did you get into this? How did you get comfortable with this? How did you become a just sensational presenter? Well, thank you for the compliment. Uh, when I started, I was not good at it, nor confident either. Um, I, I joined the JCs. Remember the Junior Chamber of Commerce used to be huge. I joined back in the 70s, early 70s, when the JCs was a big thing with 350,000 members around the US. Wow. I formed with some friends of mine in my own home neighborhood in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, brand new JC's chapter so we could go do some projects in the community and learn leadership skills. And someone told me one day, Jim, you need to run the meeting because Larry can't make it to the to the event. <laughs> and so um, I stood up in front of the group and ran the meeting and we had a guest that night. And he came up to me after the meeting and he said, you've never had a officer's training, have you? I said, what do you mean? He said, I mean, you personally, you've never been shown how to run a meeting. I said, did it, did it show? He said, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, he said, Jim, 
here, let me, let me point out a few things. And he gave me an orientation on the spot that helped me the next time I got up. It, one thing that he said that really helped a lot, hmm. he says, Jim, it's not about you. You know, presenting is not about the presentation and it's certainly not about the speaker, the presenter. And I said, but what, what else could it be about? He said, the value the audience can get from the presentation. He well, said, speech doesn't matter and the speaker doesn't matter. The utility of the message to the listener, that's what matters. Well, I, I think that's so important and it may sound nuanced, but there's even a very definitive difference between a speech, a lecture, a discussion, uh, you know, all of these different styles, being on stage and an audience in front of you and you on stage can go in a lot of different directions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I love that you say it's not about you. You're not up there to prove anything. You're there to, for, for, the, for the benefit of the audience, not for your yeah. benefit. And that's something I, to this day, after 3,100 professional speeches all over the world, wow. I still put that in my mind today. I, you know, I've spoken to groups of one. I did a three-hour seminar for one guy because he forgot to announce it, and I drove 100 <laughs> to the meeting, and nobody came but him. He said, oh, I should have sent out a, yeah, you think? Anyway, so I said, well, then you're going to teach what I've got. You're, you're going to teach them by going to them since I drove 130 miles one way just to do this presentation. He said, okay. So I said, get your pencil. And I did a three-hour seminar for one guy, train yeah. the trainer. And I've also spoken just last week in, in uh, uh, Shanghai, China. I spoke to 2,500 people for, uh, who speak Mandarin only um, for two hours, two days in a row. And I had a translator standing at my elbow and I'd do a paragraph and he'd do a paragraph and I'd do a paragraph and he all day. And wow. I've spoken to 17,000 people, you know, and, and I did the opening ceremonies of the uh, USA Special Olympics. I was the featured speaker at the opening ceremonies when they brought the torch in and all that and uh, stood there and they had 13,500 audience members. That's theater amazing. in the round, television cameras, celebrities, news media. Oh my gosh. You yeah. know, so I've, I've spoken to prison inmates in prisons. I've spoken to just about every kind of audience on earth. And the thing that I do to this day is before the speech, I just say a little prayer. I just say, Lord, help me be valuable to them. Make yeah. this work the investment of their time and energy. Let me provide something useful. That's the attention off of me. That's terrific stage advice. Um, I heard one time Tom Peters uh, talk about he arrives the night before the speech. He bought local newspapers, reads what's of interest to the community where he's presenting, and he finds a way to incorporate local events into his speech because he believes it's not how well you speak, but how well you connect with the audience. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and I found that to be great advice. In fact, I've adopted it myself. Sure. Speak. And you can do it without the newspaper. You can do it online. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Tom has incredible- I don't, I don't think Vala's the, the go to the newsstand and pay a dollar <laughs> yeah. to 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We've got, our, you know, our, we've got our newspaper in our hand now. Exactly, exactly. So what advice do you have in terms of, so I have two questions. One, whether you're speaking to one or you're speaking to 17,000, do you still get nervous and how do you deal with that? I have a pit in my stomach every time I'm, I'm, I'm in the public. Uh, well, the more you think about you, the more that pit will grow. Okay. Uh, so fear comes from self-focus. Ah. When you're focused on them and the message and how do you get the message across to them, then it's just a problem-solving issue. But when you're focused on you, how am I going to do this? Oh, my God, are they going to respect and admire me as a subject expert on this? Uh, it, do I have anything interesting enough? Then that just that's a great formula for abject terror. So, so is it? So it's not the lack. So it's not the lack of domain expertise, or is it? Is it? Uh, is it uh, imposter syndrome? That's it may be to some extent. I've, I've heard that that term used before. Let me tell you a quick story. I was in uh, since we had a focus on storytelling today. Yeah. I was hired as a 30-something-year-old speaker to do a leadership seminar for the American Medical Association Chiefs of Staff from hospitals <laughs> around the country. And um, I had been working as a leadership trainer in the JCs, and I'd been all over the country training volunteers to be effective leaders without having much time with them and without having any budget for um, taking people through a lengthy process. And um, so I, I knew what I was talking about, but I wasn't 50, 60, 70 years old like these doctors. I didn't have advanced degrees. I wasn't the doctor in charge of doctors at a hospital like them. And it never worked in a, a leadership capacity in a hospital, though I had been an orderly for two years working in a hospital. And I was trained as a combat medic and hospital corpsman when I was in the service in the army. Um, so I'm sitting in the back of the room, rosy, <laughs> black hair, baby face, waiting my turn to speak to these doctors. And all the people before me are like this. <laughs> Glasses on the end of their nose, reading their paper to the new, to, you know, the, the paper they had written sure. to other uh, doctors. And they're all, you know, heavily medical and researched and all the peer review stuff. And I'm intimidated. So it's almost my time to speak. And this guy is putting the audience nicely to sleep. And then they say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, our next speaker is Jim Cathcart. He is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And uh, I understand, you know, it, it, he may not be able to hold a job, but I understand he can hold an audience. Hmm. And um, so that, I had written that in there just to get a little thicker. So I walked to the front of the room and, Thank heavens I had the idea I needed before leaving to go home. You know, usually after you go, oh, I could have done this. It would have worked so well. Well, that day I had my idea when I needed it. So I walked to the front of the room and all these doctors look up like this, you know, bored. All right. What's a kid doing speaking to us? Does this kid realize who we are? I mean, so I go to the front of the room. I'm in a suit and look, you know, look appropriate. I walk to the lectern and I unrope the mic from the little gooseneck stand that everybody else had been leaning into to speak. And I step out from behind the lectern and they all kind of recoil. Because, you know, wait a minute, you're breaking protocol. We, we don't do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm standing there in front of them 
And I say, gentlemen, because it's all male, I said, gentlemen, I'd like you to go back in your mind to medical school and put yourself in one of the classes you had on leadership and human relations. Hmm. Then I paused and I said, could I see the hands of those of you who had a class on leadership and human relations? And I raised my hand to indicate they should raise theirs and no hands went up. Wow. And I said, please look around the room. So they look around and I said, do you know what this means? They look at me like, no, what does it mean? I said, it means I'm the expert and you guys should take notes. <laughs> they started laughing. And then they started applauding. You know, the kid made a good point. Okay, let's give him our attention. Very cool. you, you, you don't have to be the smartest person on a topic. You just have to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you don't have to be the smartest person in the room or the smartest person on the topic, but, but you've got to be the only person who has that topic well enough organized to give it to the other people better than somebody else would. That's excellent. That's well, well, I got well, hired again by the AMA to do another seminar the, the month later in Washington, D.C. For, for chiefs of staff. That's so awesome. when well, you're feeling intimidated, think, why am I here? What's this? Okay, I don't know about them, but I know about my topic. Right. So there you go. Jim, I, I love that you have to start off with, you know, unwrapping the microphone. I embarrassingly, <laughs> most of my talks begin with lowering the microphone. <laughs> uh, you know, that's how I tend to break the ice with my audiences. Um, I have a quick technology question for you. You know, we've talked about your skills at, at presenting and engaging the audience. You know, you, you've been doing this, like you said, since the early 70s and 3,100 talks. Are you seeing a shift and, a, and an impact in that shift with the technology that's used. Today we're doing a webinar, you know, to, you know, is a talk still just a presenter standing in front of slides or are we going to be using virtual reality? Are we going to, is AI going to create fake virtual speakers? What, what are you seeing in, in lecture? There is so much exciting going on today. I've got a friend, Mike Rayburn, who's a professional guitarist, uh, has had his own show in Vegas, has done Carnegie Hall, but he's also a, a professional speaker, and he talks about how to be a virtuoso, you know, like he is on guitar. How can you do that in your field? And he spends a lot of time studying his clients. Well, a couple of years ago, he had the chance to d deliver a keynote address at the National Speakers Association, which is the industry association for people that do what I do, and that's about four or 5,000 professional speakers around the world. And it's a big deal to speak to your peers, regardless what industry you're in. So Mike spent $40,000 of his own money creating a virtual reality um, uh, presentation, hologram of himself. He went into a, a studio, created a, a killer performance of half of Bohemian Rhapsody on the guitar. Wow. And then he got the hologram technology so that he could travel with it, came to the convention, set it up, came out on stage, introduced his other self, <laughs> then grabbed a guitar and played a duet with himself. Unbelievable. 
Vala, the, the bar has just been raised for you and I. <laughs> yeah, no. Me. Wow. Wow. Then, I mean, that's an extreme example, but I've seen so many other examples. For example, it used to be me and a flip chart or mm -hmm. me and an overhead projector. And then it was me and a 35 millimeter slide projector. <laughs> or it was me and props and no images at all. Um, just telling stories or using some kind of prop. Then it, it progressed to where it was PowerPoint or it was interactive slides or it was audience polling techniques. And all of this is progressing further and further. You know, now people are, have got a Twitter feed that's going during the presentation. Sure, sure. Watching the comments and then you're responding to it. And, uh, and now then they've got screens that go 60 feet wide across a huge convention stage and it's all one image. Right, right. And then you bring in remote people, you know, live people from remote locations to participate in a presentation. And I've done many of those different things. And so it keeps me on my toes because I constantly have to learn how to incorporate other technology. But I don't have to become a technology specialist. I've just got to keep it real between me and the audience. Yeah, that's and right. Make sure my message is compatible with the changes in delivery mode that might wow the audience or, or overpower, overpower what I'm, I've been talking with them about. So I've got to allow for that. Um, that factor when doing the presentation. That's fantastic. Ray Wong has just joined us. Ray, as hey, Ray. we're speaking to one of the world's leading uh, leadership development and, and speakers, uh, Jim Cathcart. Ray, do you have a question for Jim uh, as part of our you know, conclusion of our, of our interview? I don't know if Ray can hear us. <laughs> I, I was hoping he was going to play us. Oh, we have we have choppy. Yeah, but hey, that's okay. Oh, <laughs> so. I think Ray's asking if Jim will play us a little song towards. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> so not only uh, eighteen. Books, Harry's legendary. So three bestsellers and a one percent uh, TED speaker. Listen to the uh, the fantastic talents on on music with Jim. <laughs> I'll do this. Paula, is this a first on Disrupt TV? This is a first on Disrupt TV. You know Garth Brooks? Yes. Yeah. yeah one of my favorites. This old highway is getting longer. Seems there ain't no end in sight. Sleep would be best, but I can't afford to rest. I've got a ride in Denver tomorrow night. And the white line's getting longer and the saddle's getting cold. I'm much too young to feel this damn old. All my cards are on the table with no ace left in the hole. I'm much too young to feel this damn old. <laughs> Jim, Grand Slam. Absolutely, uh, Grand Slam. You are a Hall of Fame Disrupt TV guest as of right now. <laughs> thank you. I am, I am having so much fun. I'm 71 years old. I've been a professional speaker full-time since I was about 30. Uh, this morning, I got up and did a six-mile mountain trail run with a bunch wow. of my friends in a freezing cold morning and came back and got all shiny and cleaned up to look pretty for you guys. 
Well, I really appreciate it. You, you, Jim, you made me feel inadequate in many, many ways. <laughs> <laughs> Not just speaking. Health, fitness, intellect, speaking. Thank you, Jim, for uh, inspiring us to do more, for sure. Oh, it's a treat for me. Thank you, folks. I, it's been great being with you. It really has. Uh, we, 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 we welcome all of our audience. Again, 18 books, three best-selling uh, books as well. Content that's available at capcart.com. Again, 730 pages of free resources. And we encourage you to follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Cathcart. Ray, uh, I hope you were able to listen to uh, uh, myself and, uh, and, and uh, again, a first ballot Hall of Fame co-host, Alan. In fact, you know, if we go to a three, uh, uh, you know, host uh, format at some point, I, I, you know who I'm going to vote for. <laughs> <laughs> as, Thank you, Vala. As our co-host. You were great. You were great. Thank you. And we, and we should point out, Vala, really quickly, a big thank you to, uh, to Kari Anderson for suggesting awesome. a bunch of today's guests. Absolutely. Kari is amazing. Kari's network is unlike any other. So anytime Ray and I want to be inspired by extraordinary business leaders, entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, Kari is a definite uh, resource for us. Alan, your takeaway of this past hour. You know, it's amazing. If you wrap up all these three topics from Bruce and Jim and Deb, it's about, you know, trust and faith in yourself and confidence and not making it about you. Like, in every one of these cases, it's, it's put yourself in your audience's shoes and what can you deliver for them? Whether you're mentoring, whether you're ghostwriting, whether you're speaking on stage, everybody today talked about helping others and being altruistic. And you know, I just think that is an, a phenomenal thing to, to wrap up our day in. I know I've learned a lot and I wanna get better in every one of those aspects. So thank you to, to all three of them and thank you to you and th thank you to Ray. Uh, so it's the five of you that I learned from. So uh, it's been a pleasure being here. Ray, any comments? <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I think I've got Ray on uh, video delay. <laughs> a massive delay. You should just do the uh, final wrap of okay. Hi, great job, Alan. Great job, Alan. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ray. I look forward to speaking to you next week when we have, again, three extraordinary guests. We have John Bolin, SVP Chief digital officer at Mobility, who's gonna be joining us. We have Brian Katz, enterprise architect, strategist at Oath. And we have Holger Mueller, vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research. The theme for next week is Mobile World Congress. So all our guests, including Ray and I, will be extensively uh, engaged with Mobile World Congress announcements, news, trends, and we'll have next week for an hour to really recap the, you know, our, our most important findings from, from the event. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you very much for joining us and have a great weekend. Alan, again, thank you very much for being an amazing guest. Hope. You're very welcome. Take care, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.